care for all Rose can suck my balls Fuck your reply guys Please don't fuck your reply guys Just listen to reply guys Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys The leftist feminist comedy podcast for the rest of us I am Kate Willett And I am Julia Clare How's your week, Julia? <laughs> um, it's a little busy, uh, as I was I was telling you this earlier, but um, yeah, I uh, I work at a a university, and um, we I work in one of the only departments that can't be fully remote. Um, well, not one of the only, but like definitely one of the very few departments in the university that cannot be fully remote in order to be like functional. So we've had to just uh, take a lot of extreme measures and we've had no direction from the university itself, really. So um, it's kind of like, you know, in absence of the go- the federal government's action, you know, it's left to individuals. Uh, that's kind of what it feels like right now, because uh, yeah, it's just school is supposed to start in like three weeks uh and it's gonna be i mean the building where i work it's not going to be anywhere near it's not even going to be at half capacity it's going to be at like it's going to be a very small um number of people in the building at a time but it's still just like a logistical nightmare and we're getting you know uh just getting any sort of support from the higher ups has been difficult it is a full, we're in a full nightmare situation. And uh, yeah, later in this, uh, in this pod, calling it that semi-ironically, but um, <laughs> we talked to, uh, we talked to an epidemiologist, which is amazing that a person who actually knows science would come on a leftist feminist comedy podcast, but she was so smart. She talked about mitigating risk. Um, some, uh, some good insights, um, you know, TLDR, the beach is one of the safest things that you yeah. can do, uh, but yeah, th- that'll be a good conversation. My kitty cats got spayed and neutered yesterday, and it was oh. very sad, and now they have these little cones that they have to wear everywhere, <laughs> and uh, the boy cat busted out of his cone. And then he's trying to help his sister get out of her cone, too, which I thought was really sweet. But we had to put them back on, and now they're really sad. Wow, that's like straight-up airplane oxygen mask rules. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, there's no way to explain to them, like, no, this is for your safety or whatever. But it's it's funny because now they're wearing a mask too. Like that's good. It's, it's a family affair. Oh man, I feel like this is this week has. I don't know how it's felt to you, but it's been sort of depressing to me. This has felt like a real kind of turn towards uh, the mistakes of twenty sixteen. As oh, I become yeah. as I become concerned that Democrats will yell it again, snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. Uh, <laughs> Oh man, that's an episode title. Yeah. <laughs> um yeah. I was w- with each passing week that goes on and I'm, you know, I'm the podcast resident optimist, I think. Uh 
And with each passing week that goes on, I'm feeling uh, more and more concerned that, yeah, that the forces uh, in power, uh, the forces that be, have learned nothing from 2016 because um, the DNC, the convention is this week. And have I watched it from beginning to end? Absolutely not. I, you know, no. And I won't. And I know that I, I know that like Eva Longoria is really like the host of it, which is very funny to me. Um, but they've had, I mean, they, <laughs> the DNC just absolutely booked the convention speaking slots with Republicans to the gills. Like, yeah, it is. It's, uh, it's a real festival, uh, where the VIP pass is, uh, having been one of the architects of the Iraq war. <laughs> uh, and we are of course talking, mm, I mean, we could be talking about a number of people who have spoken in the DNC, but, um, Colin Powell being uh top of mind there. Also, uh, of course, John Kasich, who everyone I'm sure remembers from just absolutely gutting uh, women's reproductive health as governor of Ohio, um, a just a ferocious anti-choice monster. I think Natalie Schur made this point on Twitter yesterday, which is like you can see the logic in having like one Republican yeah, yeah, I saw this. to, uh, you know, to kind of appeal to people who may be disaffected Republicans, but... Uh, it was, it was really a whole, uh, a whole crew, uh, Cindy McCain, Colin Powell, as you mentioned, uh, John Kasich, uh, New York Congresswoman, Susan Molinari, Bloomberg, I guess, who's a, he's a Democrat now, but he's a former Republican also just has a I mean, horribly we, racist record. Uh, Meg yeah, Whitman. As, as we saw in, uh, you know, in our our infamous drag his ass of, of Mike Bloomberg. He's a, he is a glorified Republican as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, John Kasich is personally like very offensive to, I mean, I, I understand, I, I agree with Natalie and I understand the utility of like one or two, maybe never Trump Republicans coming out. Um, but giving them so much time at the convention as opposed to <laughs> giving Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez one minute, yeah, uh, says a lot. And also people freaked out because uh, no one understands how conventions work. And uh, AOC ended up seconding the nomination in her speech for Bernie Sanders. This is just how a nominating convention works, but um, like you know, national news outlets, NBC News reported it as she declined to endorse Biden, which is not the same thing. That is, this is how a nominating convention works. We remember in 16, there were different people who also like pledged their delegates and nominated Bernie Sanders. I just am tired of this as we all are, but I, I, yeah, I, I am feeling increasingly worried that with this, like, this just murder of Republicans coming in uh, to the convention that we've really, that we're losing any chance of 
kind of running on an ideological any sort of ideological platform yeah um, i mean because it's like this isn't ju- i mean it's not just the republicans speaking uh at the convention right um the dnc uh removed from the platform uh ending fossil fuel subsidies so that's that's now gone um obviously you know really uh dangerous um for the climate the hill reported this week that biden is backing off even a public option and um instead uh if elected he will focus on uh making improvements to the aca which my guess is putting the individual mandate back in um how you know legislation in this country gets passed is that it starts in the house and the house that we currently have is considerably further to the left than the democratic house of 2009 um but i don't i don't see the house i i, I don't see i mean there there are a lot of democrats in the house who don't necessarily support even a public option and i, I don't see without the kind of muscle of the presidency behind it, if uh, a Biden administration is opposed to public option, I, I don't I don't see enough of a push happening for it that it will happen. I mean, every every person in con- every Democrat in Congress, I think there were like 30, 30 to 50 Democrats in Congress who voted um, against the more progressive measures of the ACA none of them are there anymore. Like they're the era of the progressive challenger is, is upon us. I'm not saying that it's, that it's a monolith in the house. I'm just saying that like, and and I'm not saying that those people who don't even want a public option don't exist, but I'm saying that the tide has turned even from the people um, who were, you know, people who once like openly opposed Medicare for all uh, in Congress now support it. I don't have, I don't know. Biden's kind of been all over the place. Um, I, I have very little. I have very little faith in his <laughs> in uh, his personal abilities, I guess. But um, I mean, I think the. Yeah, I, I do, especially with the freshmen coming in, the numbers of the progressive caucus are getting larger and larger. And I think that the, the era of the blue dog Democrat is like on its way out. Yeah. I mean, there's, I think there's a really big difference between though, like what a Congress person or Senator uh, is willing to say that they will do or what they would support when it's not actually a possibility um like for example kamala harris was one of the original co-sponsors of bernie's medicare for all bill in the senate but you know obviously when kind of faced with the choice of you know like if you want to support it when you're actually in a position to do something a, a lot of people are going to a, a lot of people are going to defect at that point because of either uh, pressure from their donors um, because there are concerns about the impact on their own reelection. Um, and I don't know. I just don't. I mean, I don't see like obviously, you know, Pelosi was uh, very instrumental in passing ACA. But, you know, it definitely helped to have the force of the presidency behind it. And I don't know. I just I really don't. I, I really think if, you know, unless there's kind of a, aggressive pressure uh 
from Biden to pass a public option. There's just no right. way. I don't no, think no. so. I, I understand that. I just I just think that like this is also where like this is where like electoral politics and direct action have to kind of meet because um you know, a, a lot of polls say that two thirds of Americans or more support Medicare for all and like 88% of Democrats support it. Yeah, no, I understand. The part that I don't necessarily agree with uh, is that that with this Democratic Party, that that amounts that that broad public opinion, uh, the broad support and public opinion for a policy or a program amounts to them doing something like we are in a time where there are millions of people marching in the street demanding to defund the police. Um, and, you know, Biden is out here at the convention saying that he wants more money for police. So, I mean, it's uh, I think that kind of the theme here is that, you know, you can there, there's there's a lot of people who you can pander to and. You know, the Democratic Party at this convention, in my mind, uh, you know, has really, really been pandering to Republicans. And I don't think that that's because they really, truly think that there are more never Trump Republicans than there are progressives in terms of like votes to be gained. But I think that like in terms of the the policies that they would support you know, to uh, appease uh, these never Trump Republicans or whatever, it's going to be, you know, that those those policies are going to be more uh, palatable to their donors, you know. So I, I think that it's it's just a situation where it doesn't necessarily, in my mind, really matter what people are demanding unless, you know, there's kind of I mean, there could be like, you know, direct action to the point that it would have an impact like we're both speculating obviously um but i think that with enough of a groundswell on something like medicare for all i i can't say for sure like i i don't know i don't i i don't see like joe biden to me strikes me as someone who like who like enjoys his reputation as being like in his mind like kind of like a likable guy and i don't like the the idea of so much of the party uh hating him for something i would hope would uh would sway him in some way i don't know i i don't know what a what a president biden would uh how he would govern but yeah i mean i don't know i think i'm a yeah, I would go ahead and say so far that I'm a, a hard disagree on that because I, okay. I do I do think that Joe Biden cares about being likable, but I think that the way that he wants to be likable is by being uh, you know, being all things as, to all people. Be, being being seen as as bipartisan, right? Like somebody who reaches across the aisle and I think that in terms of being liked by the left, no, I don't think that he gives a shit about but, this. But no, but this is not this is what I'm saying. It's not just the left. It's like yeah. two over two thirds of Americans support Medicare for all. Yeah, um, no, I mean, I, I agree with you. But I think that here's the thing, right? Like these opinion polls, I, I, I think that, you know, like it's pretty clear that there are a lot of people who want Medicare for all. But, you know, like 
in terms of people who will go so far as to hold Democrats, you know, accountable for not providing it, that's a different and much smaller group. I think that, you know, this kind of uh, <laughs> this this thing that people were making fun of on Twitter this week regarding like USPS of like Democrats coming out and basically saying, you know, somebody should do something about yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. I think that the attitude that a lot of people are willing to accept is uh, somebody should do something about this, you know, and not really hold like these elected officials accountable for the fact that they actually have the power to to do something about this. And, and I am encouraged by how uh, kind of uh, strong the fight for Medicare for all has gotten in the past for years. But at the same time, I mean, like, we're currently in a position where we have a president and a Senate that ensure that like, nothing even close to Medicare for all. like, we're just we're trying to, like, they're trying to dismantle the ACA over there. So I think until we have, like, actually, we have Democrats uh, in the executive branch, it's kind of like, I, I don't know how much we can actually um, we can say about about that, but certainly look at how many people have run in Congress on like again, um, people who will be now second term Congress people or uh, freshman Congress men and women uh, who ran specifically on Medicare for all. It's like yeah, yeah. I mean, no, is, I, def- I definitely agree that there's some some awesome, awesome, awesome people getting elected. But then it's like, what does the party do with those people? Do they give them, you know, sixty seconds, or you know, like I, I feel like the sixty seconds is is such a good metaphor. And I mean, I no, don't want to be hopeless I, about it because I think yeah, like no. you know, there is like a there. I I do believe in like bottom up pressure. I'm just saying that like in order for something to really move. Like on a mass level, people would have to stop accepting the somebody should do something about this attitude. It's because it's happening now that the group, the progressive base and our elected officials who we elected as progressives who ran on Medicare for all are becoming larger and larger to the point where there will come a time when it can't be ignored or sidelined anymore. Um, but I don't know. I don't take that as inevitability, but I understand that, like, you know, I, I definitely think it, I I think that it could happen. I think that, you know, I, I definitely believe in, you know, like the power of mass demonstrations. What concerns me at this point and like to, to sort of like move away from what these elected officials are doing what concerns me at this point is, uh, you know, kind of the same thing we saw in 2016, where people on the left who are still demanding things like Medicare for all or calling, you know, into question, you know, why Biden is, uh, you know, has no reasonable plan of any kind to give health care to people in the middle of a fucking pandemic you know, we see is sort of an attitude among, you know, regular voters, journalists, that the people who are demanding this, the people who are still asking questions about defunding the police, that these people are actually the ones who are immoral because by calling this into question, criticizing Biden, pushing the party left, even withholding their vote until they see 
uh, that at least some concessions have been made. These people are being maligned as evil and the narrative is becoming like, you know, oh, well, like, look at these entitled privileged people, mm. you know, and I think that there's so many people that are willing to kind of accept that, that uh, I think that's what makes me not optimistic and perhaps it will change if Biden is elected. But I think that there there is like kind of a a big I don't know the 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 narrative that like actually wanting the democrats to do something is entitled and privileged because republicans are worse uh, it's a, it's pretty pervasive and it is certainly uh i think it's pervasive like in the the dnc structure i don't think it's pervasive in terms of like everyday americans or every even like everyday democrats i think there are a lot of you know, there are people, there are people who didn't even like support Bernie in the primary, who maybe supported another candidate who still think that Biden needs to be further left and needs to be like, and a Biden administration needs to do more, um, and needs to like have a real clear policy plan for the unprecedented challenges that we're facing right now. Yeah, no, I totally agree that there are people who think that, but then it, then it just comes down to a question of like, you know, if if you think that it's one thing, but like, are you are you angry at anyone who is trying to leverage actual power by, uh, you know, let's say withholding a vote by uh, demonstrating <laughs> in a way that you would not consider peaceful, you know? Um, and I think that that's where I don't know. That's where a lot of the kind of where a lot of rank and file liberals i i actually don't really count on uh on their support whatsoever um but you know i mean it could change right because i don't think that like everything i I don't know i don't think that everything like that would happen under a biden administration in terms of like you know kind of uh how the how the public would uh, regard uh, a lack of action. I don't. I don't think it could be one for one um, to the Obama administration because like, we are, as a society, uh, you know, in the middle of a depression and a pandemic, and you know, conditions are are so bad that I don't think that like it's necessarily uh, given that folks would go back to sleep or um, accept. Oh, I don't I don't think so at all cuz we're in it I mean this is a totally different country than <laughs> the yeah. one that But uh, I mean the thing is this a lot of the people I mean a lot of we this is like a different country but you know I mean a lot of people are still really 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 comfortable I'm worried that if Biden loses obviously having Trump be you know reelected would be a tragic disaster uh also you know the the groundwork is is being laid really well to blame the left for that. I'm worried if Biden wins that, you know, um, just in the way that uh, happens in the Obama administration, that, you know, it's it's possible to uh, blame, you know, Republicans for being blockers and to create uh, that narrative, um, you know, which well, was not I, true yeah. even in the first two years of Obama, you know? I mean, yeah, sure. Like, I mean, we can like it's been very well documented that the Obama administration didn't do 
like one tenth enough of what it should have done when it had like bulletproof majorities in both houses of the legislature. But I, I just, uh, I mean, like if so long as Mitch McConnell is uh, alive and breathing, and the speaker and uh, the rather the Senate Majority Leader. Yeah, he is going to be like an obstructionist. That's what he does. That's what he's been doing for decades. But I mean, as far as democratic legislation goes, I, I mean, the party is very much like headed towards some much more progressive policy goals than in, and I'm not talking about the like the higher ups of the DNC. I'm talking about the party voters like the only thing that i disagree on is that it will matter what people want unless people are willing to uh you know leverage power in a serious way that liberals are mostly pretty opposed to still but i mean you know interesting interesting uh interesting things to think about you know it's i definitely you know, I, I definitely uh, think that, you know, Trump is is uh, worse or whatever, but that should go without saying. I mean, he's, he's really, really bad. So I don't know. I mean, you know, hopefully, I, I guess at this point, hopefully there is that opportunity to uh, to fight Biden as hard as possible. And, I you know, I guess we should wrap up our intro, but uh, I'm I'm really super excited about our guest today. Uh I got to ask some really good, I got to ask some questions that have been on my mind about the pandemic uh, for a while, how we still have some fun here and there. What does harm reduction look like? Uh, My most anxiety question, will we have to social distance forever? And it was awesome. (laughs) This is uh, Dr. Julia Marcus. She is a Harvard epidemiologist, and it was really such a pleasure to talk to her. Just listen to Reply Guys. Hello, I am here with Dr. Julia Marcus, who is an epidemiologist and has written some really great pieces that I've really enjoyed for The Atlantic on the pandemic. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. So the first piece of yours that caught my eye is you were writing about quarantine fatigue and i was i think really relieved to hear the perspective of an epidemiologist acknowledging that this was having some kind of emotional effect on people because everything that i'd seen so far was solely framed in terms of the impact on the economy and a lot of your work has been talking about you know the need for like social interaction and um what what inspired you to write those pieces? Yeah, I think that first piece, um, that was at a moment in early May when we had been doing this for a couple months. And I think initially there was a sense that maybe we'd, we'd uh, all stay home for a few weeks and this would go away. And of course, that's not what happened. And, and it became clear in April that this was going to become a much longer term situation. Um, and and once we moved into that mode, there were still just kind of two positions out there, which were we have to just stay home indefinitely, like until there's an effective vaccine and we've scaled it up. 
um, which may be, you know, in a year. Um, and then the other position was we, we need to just go back to business as usual and reopen everything. And those, neither of those positions I felt were tenable. And it felt to me like there was a lot in between that wasn't really getting addressed and that obviously going back to business as usual was a, a potential disaster in the making, but staying home indefinitely is, um, not just a disaster in the making as well, but also not feasible or realistic. And so that's kind of where I was coming from. Yeah, I I think that, you know, it was it was kind of weird because like at the beginning of the pandemic, it it seemed like there was a lot of different information, like some people thinking that we, you know, would stay home for, you know, a couple of weeks or three weeks. And I mean, and that's what a lot of governors were saying. And then... You know, there was that Imperial College study that said, you know, we we needed to stay home for 18 months. Why was there such a variety of information? Were people being purposefully dishonest or did really just no one know? I'm not sure. It's hard to, to know what was going on in terms of the messaging that was coming from elected officials versus the messaging that was coming from um, public health officials who were also under some constraints in terms of what, what they could say. And I think there was kind of more urgent messaging that came from the CDC early on. And I think that may have kind of catalyzed some of the, the later um maybe I'll say uh, restrictions on their ability to speak. And so, so it's hard to know. It's hard to know. But I do think there was mixed messaging about how long this was going to go on. And I think that that affects what people do in terms of their, their planning for sustainable decision making and ways that they can endure in a long term situation versus going all in on something that may just be a few weeks and then realizing you've kind of shot your load. And, um, and you know, we want we want people to have um, resilience and be able to find a way that they can live their lives in a way that's low risk, but also something they can sustain for the long term. So you frame this in a way that I thought was really interesting and useful um, in terms of harm reduction. And I think that the example that you gave was like, you know, during the HIV epidemic at the height of that, people weren't saying never have sex with anyone again. Or maybe there were people saying that. But, you know, it was about kind of managing the risk and being as safe as you can, which I thought was a really good metaphor. And um, yeah, is, is is there anything else that, you know, kind of like, like what is harm reduction for this pandemic look like potentially? Well, harm reduction really originated in the field of substance use and was developed by and for people who use drugs. And the the goal is to... Um, reduce the potential harms when people do inevitably take some risks and, and to try to um, support people in moving toward um, reduced risk, but without necessarily the goal of total abstinence. Because we've seen in um, both the field of substance use and, and HIV prevention um, from um, with respect to sexual transmission that 
trying to push abstinence not only is ineffective, but is actively counterproductive. Um, when we just say, uh, don't do drugs, when we say don't have sex, or when we say stay home forever, <laughs> um, or for, for the foreseeable future, um, what we're doing is we're not giving people a sense of ways that they can reduce any risk when they do inevitably use drugs, have sex, go outside. Um, and of course, some people may be able to um, to abstain. And, and that's great. And that's something that we should support as well. Um, but but some people can't. And so I think in the in this current situation, we need to be acknowledging that people have needs for social contact. And to just say, um, stay six feet apart and wear masks and wash your hands is not enough. We need to say, if you're going to have social contact, here are the safest ways to do it. So what are the safest ways to have social contact? Asking for a friend, of course. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we know enough at this point about the higher risk and lower risk settings for transmission that it's it's pretty clear that being outdoors is substantially lower risk than being in an indoor enclosed setting. And if you are indoors, open the windows, but um, or leave, prop the door open, um, wear masks. But in general, I think especially where and for as long as the, the weather allows it, meeting up with people outdoors is going to be um, far lower risk than meeting up indoors. And of course, if you add on distancing and masks, it's going to be even lower risk. Um, but, you know, we see a lot of um, shaming of people on beaches in particular. I mean, that's been... Um, there, there has been a beach photo attached to some very large proportion of dire pandemic articles in the media. Um, and often those beach photos are not showing crowds. They're showing people who are just hanging out on the beach. And the beach is a fairly low risk place to be if people are able to be spaced apart, which generally they can be on a beach. And, and so I think that's the kind of activity that we can be supporting. And I think some worry that if we say, look, it's okay to go to the beach, that we're implicitly um, promoting risk-taking, um, or maybe even explicitly. And I, and I actually think that what we're promoting is a sustainable life where people can have some pleasures, can have some interaction, um, and, and that will help us get through this in a way that's, I think, far less traumatic and may end up with lower risk in the long term. I um, So I'm a comedian and I live in... New York and you know we we had it was really serious here in the spring and so I mean I didn't see anyone for months and months um at all except for um the guy that I lived with and you know now it's uh it's a situation where post-protest New York feels completely different I think because people have figured out that it is a little bit safer to see people outside um but I think you know, one thing that's on everyone's mind here is that winter is coming. And, you know, are we in a situation where in cold climates where it's not really going to be super possible to hang out outside with people? Is is there any way to kind of continue to, to see other people at all? Or is it really best to abstain unless you can find some sort of situation with a heat lamp? <laughs> I do wonder if there's going to be a run on, on heat lamps. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I think this is the situation that many of the southern states are in right now, where it's really difficult to to socialize outdoors when it's 105 degrees. Um, and the Northeast is going to be facing this in the winter. And I, I think that's all the more reason why um, we should support people in, in enjoying parks and beaches right now while they can. And for the winter, I... I I think it's going to be challenging, um, and I think we're going to have to get creative. Um, and I, I wonder if uh, social pods may be one strategy that will help us get through the winter, where, you know, if we really do need social contact outside of our households, and many people live alone, um, so that, you know, I think for them, it's not, it's really not sustainable to say, don't see anyone for the entire winter, which can be six months in the Northeast. I think then it's, um, it's a question of, you know, can you, find a very small group of people, maybe um, a, a couple other people outside of your household or one other household um, who you can see indoors and, and have open communication about risk and, and try to keep that risk in your pod as low as possible. And that, that may be one way that, you know, it's not zero risk. It's, it's definitely you're adding risk every time you have an additional social contact. Um, but if the alternative is uh, total isolation, which has its own risks, then it it may be a viable choice. Yeah, it's, uh, it is, you know, it is really weird to get used to this new way of life. And I guess, you know, the question on my mind is probably the question that is on everyone's mind, which is, you know, how long should we expect our lives to look like this? Or, or maybe like, will the change kind of be, Will the change towards like more social interaction again? Will that be incremental? Like, I don't know. I, I know no one kind of knows, but uh, what are what's what's the current thinking on that? I think it's very hard to know, and I I, I think. Um with a situation like this, there is so much that will only be known at the end. Um, and I think uh, the questions you're asking, I mean, we could speculate, but I think we can pretty safely say that things are not going to be um, a are not going to feel the way they did pre pandemic for quite some time. And so it, it, I think the focus on sustainability really makes sense here. I'm going to ask like the most like worry question in the world because <laughs> that's how my brain works and I know that other people's brain works like this is there a chance that we just live in a world where we social distance like forever and that's like how life is now or do we do you definitely think that we'll go back to not having the social distance at some point I don't think we are going to be doing social distancing forever. Um, I think there may be th things that are um, fundamentally changed after this, and, and inevitably there will be. And some of those things may be um, related to social interaction and the way that we um, think about each other, think about handshakes, um, think about hugs, that kind of thing. It really may shift for this generation that's experienced this. Um, but no, I don't think we are going to be doing what we're doing now forever. Um, or I certainly hope not. Yeah, it's a, <laughs> it's really, it's been a, it's been a weird thing as a comedian. Um, you know, we, like comedians have, um, 
switch to kind of doing like Zoom Zoom comedy shows, like Zoom stand up, which has really been kind of strange. <laughs> and I definitely I definitely can't wait to like be able to perform in a comedy club at some point. Which I thought, like, I guess at the beginning of the pandemic, it was like, okay, well, maybe there's a way to do it if people are six feet apart, you know, with masks on or something. But now it now it's kind of seeming like even if people are six feet apart, if the same air is circulating in the room that like it doesn't really necessarily matter if people are six feet apart, it's still dangerous. Is that true? That's right. Six feet may not be sufficient indoors. So what is it like to be an epidemiologist right now? Um, what a good question. Uh, you know, um, up until I think March, um, nobody knew what epidemiologists did. Um, and now it's a, it's a very different existence. Um, I have never had so many requests for things in my life. Um, and, you know, it's also, uh, we're all still trying to do the work we usually do um, in our day jobs. And, and um, you know, I'm an HIV prevention researcher, and, and that's 100% of my, um, you know, what I'm supposed to be doing. And, uh, and our, our work and our focus has really shifted in some pretty dramatic ways. Um, and maybe, um, you know, in the next year, this will pass and everyone will forget about epidemiologists and we can just kind of go back to our quiet jobs. And um, I, I hope that that's the case. Uh, yeah, I can imagine, like, for someone who is an epidemiologist, like you probably you, you probably didn't get into this particular profession expecting to be in the public eye. And I. I can imagine that that's it's kind of weird that it took that turn that there's like famous epidemiologists now. It's very weird. And I think probably many of us are introverts. <laughs> and um, it's it's uh, it does take a toll, I think, um, being in the public eye. So it, it comes with some rewards. It feels really good to um, to write in a way that resonates for people and to help with public health messaging right now. Um, but it, it is also uniquely exhausting. Have you gotten backlash, like, you know, regular uh, women on the Internet backlash, but also like people, you know, COVID denier backlash? Have you seen any of that? Um, I think anybody who is writing for the public or has, uh, you know, a big Twitter following, um, anybody who's really in the public eye or speaking to the media a lot is going to get backlash. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've definitely experienced that. Um, and I've also gotten really lovely messages from people. And I try to focus on internalizing those. And, and I'm very happy to engage with people who are, um, you know, criticizing, but in a civil way and happy to have discussions with them. Um, but plenty of trolls, too. Yeah, I mean, that we talk about that on this podcast a lot. That's that's why it's called Reply Guys. It's named after those guys. Um, <laughs> I want I want to make sure that before you go, we uh, talk just a little bit about your most recent piece, for the Atlantic. Um, and, uh, it was, it was such a great piece. It was about basically how policing is not going to help 
anything with this pandemic. I think specifically talking about what's happening in L.A. And could you tell our listeners who may not be familiar a little bit about that? And we'll also post a piece in the comments. Yeah, I mean, there's been um, a lot of attention paid to um, to parties that are happening and concerns about clusters associated with those parties, specifically indoor gatherings. And um, and I think rightfully so. I mean, I think it, we don't really have systematic data on how much social gatherings are contributing to the pandemic versus indoor workplaces, um, which uh, which we know we have known for quite some time are a risk. And, um, you know, we need we need to be protecting workers. But um, with this focus on partying and and, you know, people having private gatherings, there's also been an increase in um, law enforcement and um, punitive measures to try to deter people from having parties. And I think that enforcement can make sense in really egregious situations as a last resort. Um, but I think we also need to think very carefully before using punitive measures to enforce public health guidelines. It's just it's something that has really not played out well in the past. And um, the example I gave was from criminalization of HIV exposure. So, you know, it's a crime in many, if in most states, actually, to um, expose somebody to HIV, um, for example, by not disclosing your HIV status. And, and that's often true, even if you're using a condom, even if you're, you have, um, you're virally suppressed, so you can't transmit the virus. So there are ways that um, criminalization is often not necessarily science-based, but more um, morality-based. And we also see the ways that it plays out disproportionately. Anytime we bring in policing, we see a disproportionate impact in communities that are already marginalized. Um, and where actually the risk may be far less driven by parties and more driven by occupational exposure. So it's kind of a misdirection of resources. Um, so, you know, it's not it's not a blanket, uh, you know, this should never be done, but more there are other things we can be thinking about doing before we bring in the cops. I could not agree more. I mean, seeing the cops in New York during the protest, I mean, they were just like picking up a bunch of people, putting them in jail, not wearing masks, people who are not doing anything dangerous, by the way. And, you know, it was like. Yeah, there was no concern for social distancing. I, I am, I am very skeptical that the uh, police are a, a good bet for keeping people safe during the pandemic. Um, well, I know you have to go in just a moment, but was there anything that I didn't ask you about that you want to make sure and tell our listeners? I don't think so, but I've um, really enjoyed talking with you, and thanks, thanks a lot for having me. One more question: Are you optimistic about? a vaccine or just no way of knowing at this point? Um, I am optimistic that we will have a vaccine. Um, I, I don't know necessarily what that timeline is, and I don't think it will be, um, you know, highly effective. I think it will be moderately effective, but who knows? Um, and I think the most important thing will be how we implement that. Um, so, you know, just having an effective vaccine alone is um, not sufficient. And actually what I work on is um, not just HIV prevention, but implementation of HIV prevention tools, because we actually have the tools we need to prevent HIV. And the challenge really is implementation. So I think that part is going to be crucially important.
Well, fingers crossed. And I just want to say thanks again so much for coming on the show today. It was really great speaking with you. Um, and we really appreciate it. We'll put your Twitter handle in the show notes. And um, thanks again for the work that you're doing right now. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to Reply, guys. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find us. Uh, the show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Julia Clare. Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song was performed by Emily Fremgen, who wrote the song with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's. And I'm at OJuliaTweets, O-H julia tweets and twitter is where you can also find our reply guys they are always with us bernie take us out as i went walking that ribbon of highway i saw above me that endless skyway I saw below me that golden valley. This land was made for you and me. This land is your land. This land is my land.